We'll hear argument now in number 90, 1859, J.C. Keeney v. Jose Tamayo Reyes. Uh, Mr. Landau. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case presents a straightforward question of when a habeas petitioner who failed to fully develop the facts of his case in a state post-conviction proceeding is nevertheless entitled to a federal evidentiary hearing. It is the state's position that he should be entitled to that federal hearing only when he can demonstrate cause for his failure to present his evidence and prejudice that results. My argument this afternoon will focus on two propositions in support of that conclusion. First, that cause and prejudice is required in this case because, of the, because the Court's recent decisions requiring the application of that test in other circumstances are not distinguishable here. Second, that Section 2254D of the 1966 Federal Habeas Act does not preclude the adoption of a cause and prejudice standard under these circumstances. The statute does not address the question of whether an evidentiary hearing is required, but rather the weight that must be given to state fact findings when the hearing is to be held. Before turning to those contentions, let me briefly recount the factual context for those contentions. Jose Tamayo Reyes was charged in state court with the crime of murder. In accordance with a plea agreement, he agreed to plead no contest to the lesser charge of manslaughter. Ten months later, Tamayo Reyes filed a state post-conviction petition challenging the voluntariness of that plea. The state post-conviction court gave him a fair opportunity to present all of the evidence that he thought should be before the court on that issue. He now says that he didn't develop that record as completely as he should have and that he would like to supplement that record through a federal court evidentiary hearing. The federal court denied his request for a petition or a request for the evidentiary hearing. The Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit agreed that Tamayo Reyes received a full and fair hearing but nevertheless reversed, holding that the district court should have applied the rule of Townsend v. Sane, which requires a federal evidentiary hearing as long as the petitioner's failure to develop the facts in the state post-conviction proceeding was not deliberate. Thus, the Ninth Circuit's ruling means that once petitioners raise their claims, they are not responsible for failing to fully develop those claims in the state post-conviction proceeding unless they did so as the result of a conscious, considered, deliberate decision. In all other cases, he forgot. He failed to discover evidence that was reasonably available to him or anything other, virtually anything other than a tactical decision. His failure to develop those facts at the state court proceeding requires the federal court to hold an evidentiary hearing. The precise question before this court, then, is whether the Ninth Circuit was correct and whether Townsend's deliberate bypass rule is still good law. Turning to our first proposition, that cause and prejudice... 
court as to these issues, was there? That is correct, Your Honor. There was no... And yet you obtained a grant of cert. I beg your pardon? And yet you obtained a grant of cert. Yes, we did, Your Honor. Returning to our first proposition that cause and prejudice and not mere deliberate bypass must be applied in this case, I suppose the short answer is that Townsend borrowed the deliberate bypass test from Fay v. Noya, which was decided the same day. Fay v. Noya, however, has since been limited in a number of decisions and was ultimately overruled this last term in Coleman v. Thompson. The basis for Townsend's deliberate bypass standard then is gone, and so also, we argue, should the rule itself. There are, however, more fundamental reasons for rejecting the deliberate bypass standard in this case than the overruling of Fay v. Noya. The court rejected the deliberate bypass test in that case and criticized it in other cases for good reasons, and those underlying reasons apply with equal force here. In those cases, the court addressed the question of whether deliberate bypass or cause and prejudice should apply where habeas petitioners fail to raise claims, fail to appeal, or fail to conform to any number of other state procedural rules. The same principle must apply here where the issue is whether or when to grant a state habeas petitioner a federal evidentiary hearing. This is so for at least three reasons. Of course, in all those other instances, I suppose it is true that we could look to an adequate and independent state ground as the basis for the procedural bar and so forth. That is not present here. Justice O'Connor, it is true that the court has looked at the policies that underlie the adequate and independent state ground in some of its decisions, though not all, in those decisions in which the cause and prejudice standard is adopted. In the Davis case, in the Francis case, in a number of others, the court has applied the cause and prejudice test for different reasons. Having said that, we would still submit that the policies that are underlying the adequate and independent state ground test that were applied in those other cases apply here as well. Well, of course, one other concern might be that here the federal court has agreed to entertain the legal issue. The federal court is going to hear that issue and decide it on habeas. And maybe the federal court should, maybe it's desirable that it decide it based on all the facts as they could be developed rather than simply on the record below. I think there are some differences here that you have to come to grips with. My response to that, Justice O'Connor, would be that federal habeas petitioners get a single opportunity to make their factual record or show cause for failure to do so, as this court held in the McCleskey case just this last term. Why should state petitioners be treated differently and have an easier time of obtaining the second evidentiary hearing? As this court said in the Francis case, when considering whether or not to adopt the cause and prejudice standard that it had in Davis, we shouldn't be treating state and federal petitioners differently. Well, McCleskey was a state prisoner. 
I, he was a state prisoner on federal habeas. That is, that is true, Justice Kennedy. But the, the question in that case was uh, the extent to which you get a successive uh, habeas Yes, uh, and hearing. we made it very clear that this the duty of the petitioner at the extent possible to uh, bring all of his claims in the first proceeding. But uh, doesn't that mean that that first proceeding uh, is of the greatest importance? And so isn't that an argument, at least, for saying that there should be a full fact-finding and evidentiary hearing at that stage? Uh, absolutely. And that, we believe, is one of the most important reasons why uh, there should be a cause and prejudice test uh, applied in this uh, circumstance in cases like it so that there is the proper incentive for petitioners to develop the facts at the first opportunity, well, which I, is I the state's first petition. opportunity, and, and uh, my, 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 my submission to you was that it was the first hearing in federal court where the statute, one of the provisions of the statute for disregarding the uh, state's finding is that the facts were not adequately developed. Well, as the court has observed uh, repeatedly, in its, in its uh, cause and prejudice tests, one of the uh, most important defects of the deliberate bypass test is that it fails to pay proper respect to the state's role uh, in, the, in the overall uh, criminal adjudication process. Uh, this consideration is uh, what underlies uh, all of those cases that should apply here. I mean, why, for example, should we should we require uh, habeas petitioners to raise a claim and then not require them to offer all the evidence in support of that claim? What's the purpose of having them raise that claim if not to offer all the evidence in support of that claim uh, at one time? The consequences of failing to treat uh, those two situations is the same, whether we're talking about uh, the, difference or the similarities between failure to raise a claim and uh, to uh, provide all your evidence or uh, the federal evidentiary hearing in the question that you put to me is, is more than rhetorical. And that is because the, the court has repeatedly said that it is the state court that is the best place to develop the factual record. The state court hearing is the closest in time to the factual events that are at the heart of these petitions. The witnesses are available. They have fresh memories. The court sees all of them at once, not piecemeal over the course of six, eight, or ten years. And the state court is best able to see how all those parts fit into a coherent whole. So accuracy, efficiency, uh, and justice on the part of, of all parties involved in this system are served by having the factual record developed as early as possible in the state court. Deliberate bypass works against those interests. It provides, we submit, insufficient incentive for petitioners to develop, to develop as fully uh, as they can uh, the record in the uh, post-conviction hearing. Excuse me. This, in turn, imposes costs on both the federal uh, and state components of this, this uh, partnership uh, that is the joint uh, federal and state uh, criminal justice system. For example, it, it wastes the resources of the state and frustrates their attempt to come to the right decision based on all the evidence that is before it. Uh, the, Mando, the, can, I, uh, can I interrupt with, with just one question? You're making a policy argument in favor of your position. It may make a lot of sense. Uh, do you think that uh, your position does require overruling a portion of Townsend? 
That is correct. Uh, what about, uh, how, how consistent is your position with uh, subsection D3 of 2254? I'd be happy to turn uh, to that uh, portion of my argument, Justice Stevens. Uh, it is true that the uh, respondent, uh, Tamaya Reyes, has argued that in enacting the statute uh, in 1966, specifically section 2254D, uh, that Congress somehow adopted uh, the deliberate bypass test of Townsend. Uh, we think that's incorrect. The statute and Townsend serve related but very different purposes. Townsend identifies the situations in which the federal courts are required to offer petitioners an evidentiary hearing. The statute, by way of contrast, Section 2254D, defines the weight that must be given the state court determinations. Those are two different functions. And, and, and so to say that one adopts the other is, is, if you'll excuse the colloquialism, mixing apples and oranges. If it's, even if it's assumed that the act uh, somehow uh, bore on this situation, uh, it, I think that if you look at the structure of the act as a whole, the only possible standard that could be drawn uh, from that uh, is the cause and prejudice statute. If you look, for example, at the other two uh, sections that uh, relate to additional evidentiary hearings in the same enactment from the 1966 Act, uh, they require uh, a cause-type standard, and it doesn't make any sense uh, that Congress would not apply the similar standard uh, in the similar circumstance. Section 2244B, for example, this is the statute, the successive petition statute that was at issue in McCleskey, uh, defines the extent to which successive federal habeas petitions can be filed and provides that new grounds will not be allowed unless the petitioner can establish cause and prejudice. This, that's a successive petition. That's yeah. correct. But this is not a successive petition. That's correct. And I'm not quite sure I understand why that section should inform well, as, the problem as, before us. As this court said in Brown versus Allen, the same policies that underlie the successive petition uh, sections also inform the evidentiary hearing. Do you think hearing. the same strict standards that apply to second habeas petitions should apply to first habeas petitions? This is true. Th that's correct. What we're talking about is trying to provide incentives for petitioners to bring all their evidence to court as early as possible so that the, the court that is hearing this matter in the first instance can make its, its decision based on the best record possible. And to the extent that you allow uh, petitioners or that you provide less incentive for petitioners to do that, you frustrate the process. You frustrate the state court's ability to arrive at correct decisions. You also frustrate the federal I wasn't court. quite sure when you answered Justice Stevens' first question about 2254 D3. Uh, I, I, I thought the substance of your answer was uh, that, well, the hearing doesn't have to be held. Of course, the proceeding must be held. In any, you're, you're absolutely entitled to bring the first proceeding. And uh, 2254D begins that way in any proceeding instituted in the federal court. And then it says that the state's uh, fact-finding should be deemed adequate unless than D3 um, the material facts were not adequately developed. That, that is absolutely correct, Justice Kennedy. But what, if, if you look carefully at the, at the language of the statute, I think it works in the following way. If you have a, uh, a Townsend-type case, if you have any of the, the eight circumstances listed in the statute, there is no presumption of correctness attached to the state court fact yes. finding. 
what that and in all other cases the fine the presumption of correctness does attach to the extent that the presumption does not attach it is only to the findings and so the court in a proceeding can evaluate the evidence that is before it in the factual factual record developed below and render its independent decision draw its own legal conclusions from the historical facts that are on that record well provided it finds that the facts were adequately developed I'm sorry, I'll have to take a look at my statute here. I'm not sure where it is that you are reading from. Well, 2254 D3. Oh, certainly. Uh, that, that, is, that is one of the... But isn't that, isn't that the gravamen of, of, of the respondent's argument here? That the facts weren't adequately developed? Yes, and if the facts were not adequately developed under Townsend, and if depending on what standards you apply under Townsend, you determine whether or not there will be a hearing. Once it is determined that there will be a hearing, then you have to determine what the evidentiary presumption will be with respect to the state court factual findings. And there's no evidentiary presumption if the facts were not adequately developed. That's correct. And what that means is, Your Honor, that the state court may not presume that the state court determination, the conclusions that were drawn by the state court, that those are no longer entitled to a, to, a, an, to a presumption of correctness. You mean the federal court may not make yeah. that presumption? That, that is, that is that's, correct. But that's this case. That's correct. Well, no, what, if, to the extent that it applies to this case, it is only if the court determines in the first instance by applying Townsend that there will, in fact, be a hearing. What, well, what you're saying basically is that there's going to be some form of waiver under Section 3 anyway, that you say it should be based on cause and prejudice. Your opponent says it should be based on deliberate bypass. Nobody says, I take it, that uh, a federal habeas petitioner can come into federal court after a state hearing and say the material facts were not adequately developed in the state court, period, without having any inquiry made as to, as to what the proceedings in the state court were and what position he took. Th that is correct. I, I believe that neither party are taking issue uh, with that. It is a given that the court will need under Townsend to apply either the deliberate bypass test uh, that was expressed in Townsend or the cause and prejudice test, which we are proposing here. You're saying that subsection 3 is given application under your theory when a case is accepted by the federal court because there was cause and prejudice, and then having accepted it, finding that as to a particular matter, the material facts, because of the cause and prejudice, were not adequately developed, as to that item, having accepted the case, the court will not give any deference to the state court determination. Precisely. And, so and, it still does so, have some application. As I said, they are related, but they serve right. distinct, distinctly different purposes. My only point was that the state, uh, that the district court on, on the first federal petition has no option but to accept the proceeding. That is correct. It does have The question is whether or not there should be uh, an evidentiary hearing. Correct. Correct. And I think that's borne out by the, follow, by the second paragraph of the statute, which, which uh, provides that in an evidentiary hearing, in a proceeding, this is how you rebut the presumption. This is how you offer evidence to controvert the presumption. The first portion of the statute uh, refers to those cases where there is no evidentiary hearing. But, but in this respect, it's different from McCleskey because McCleskey said there should be no proceeding, that proceeding itself is part. 
I will grant you that distinction. My, my point, though, is simply that the policies that, that uh, undergirded the Court's decision in McCleskey think are applicable here. Uh, trying to... Well, afford- they're interpreting a different statute. There. They're interpreting as the excessive petition statute. Th- that is correct. And my, I was going to ask you, you started to refer to a second statute, never quite got to it, I think, in answer to my earlier question. Is there a statutory provision that directs itself at the question whether a hearing shall be held? Uh, whether a hearing shall be held for state or petitioners who had a state hearing? Yes. No, there is not, Your Honor. So all we have is the law as interpreted in Townsend, and, and the question is whether to revise uh, judge-made law. Th- that is correct. But there, did you have a second statutory provision you wanted to mention to me when well, I asked you earlier? Certainly. There, my, my first point was that the, the successive petition yeah. statute, as, as interpreted in McCleskey, requires a finding cause. Uh, I also wanted to point out that uh, the... There's a second section, 2244C, uh, in the same enactment, uh, also requires a cause-type standard. Under that subsection, uh, if this court reviews a state court judgment, uh, then its resolution of the state defendant's federal claim is conclusive unless the defendant can show that the facts he or she wishes to add to the record were not known despite the exercise of reasonable diligence. And I, I will grant that it's, it doesn't say cause and prejudice, but I think the import of that is that, that the petitioner must exercise some reasonable diligence, must take responsibility, must explain uh, the failure to offer uh, the, uh, the evidence in the first instance. And my point was simply that if you accept for the sake of argument that uh, the statute even does speak to the question of when there is a hearing, it only makes sense to apply the cause and prejudice test because it is applied in the same enactment uh, that was all part of a package in 1966, and it doesn't make any sense. Provision uh, is in your brief somewhere? Uh, yes, it is. It, it's, it's certainly in the uh, in the reply brief in, in the section in which we. Uh, I mean, you set it forth. I know you mentioned it. Do you set it set forth the text? Oh, of actually, I don't believe, uh, Justice Scalia, that we actually set forth the text of, of that section. I wish you'd do that. Beg your pardon for for not doing that. The, the point, though, I, I think, as I, as I tried to mention just a minute ago, was that these were, we, these were part of a package in 1966, and it doesn't make any sense that uh, Congress would require a deliberate bypass in, under Section 2254D, but uh, a cause-type standard in the others. I don't think you even cited in your reply brief. It's not in your statutory authorities. It's in your principal brief. Principal brief, but... Uh... Thank, thank you. Returning to the... To the no, well, what, what section is it that, that the question your answers have just been referring to? Section is 28 U.S.C. section 2244 B and C. Thank you. And, and was. Returning to our uh, discussion of the policies that have uh, undergirded the court's recent decisions on cause and prejudice... And in our contention that those same policies apply here, uh, a, a second failing of deliberate bypass that this court has, uh, has observed is that the deliberate bypass test pays insufficient attention uh, to the state's interest in obtaining finality to criminal litigation. If the state criminal justice system is to have any credibility, if, it, if it's to have any deterrent effect at all, it must be in the certainty that final judgment will be rendered and that the convicted criminals can't litigate and relitigate the facts underlying those convictions. 
The same has to be said here. Nearly every state post-conviction case could have been tried differently. Uh, what trial lawyer doesn't complete a trial only to think of a some point forgotten or some material question not answered? It, it is, in fact, hard to imagine a prisoner who could not come up with an additional fact offer uh, in a subsequent hearing. And the, the, if anything, the application of the deliberate bypass in this case uh, creates precisely the situation that the court observed must be avoided, and that is turning the state court hearing from the main event uh, to a tryout. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to reserve any remaining time for rebuttal. May I just ask one question? Justice Stevens has a question. It isn't that turning them into trial is the main event, right? The question here is whether the first state collateral proceeding was asked, and that's not the main event. What what I'm arguing here is that the the same uh, reasoning that applied with respect to that comment, trying to get resolution. The main event also applies to the second most important event. That's correct. Very well, Mr. Landau. Mr. Wax, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Mr. Tamayo Reyes is entitled to a federal habeas corpus hearing in the circumstances of this case under several enactments of Congress and decisions of this Court. The hearing is critical in this case in order for the federal courts to fairly and properly carry out their responsibilities to do justice as the habeas corpus statute requires. The hearing is critical here so that the federal court can consider the information contained in the affidavit which was obtained for the federal hearing, an affidavit which casts serious doubt on the accuracy of the interpretation which was provided by the state to Mr. Tamayo Reyes at the time that the no contest plea was entered. Does it also cast doubt uh, on the adequacy of the determination? Is, is, that, is that the semantic equivalent to what you just said? In other words, uh, you, you said it casts doubt on the accuracy. Is that the same as, as the standard required in uh, 2254 D3? I believe it is, Your Honor. I believe that that affidavit... Does it's sh- about adequate development, not the, not the accuracy of the determination. I do not believe that the affidavit in and of itself is the reason why we're entitled to a hearing. I believe that that affidavit is evidence which shows that the hearing in the state court did not result in adequate development of the facts. But even absent that affidavit, we have on the meager record which was created in the state post-conviction proceeding, the person who was hired as an interpreter saying that all he told Mr. Tamayo Reyes was murder is killing someone without permission and manslaughter is less than murder. The importance of the federal hearing would be to more fully develop the manner in which the interpretation defect did not convey what is required in order for a person to understand the mens rea elements. The standards under which Mr. Tamayo Reyes is seeking a hearing have been in effect for nearly 30 years. Standards which were set out in Townsend and adopted at least twice by enactments of Congress. 
standards which have provided strong protection to state interests during that time. We submit that this Court should not, and perhaps cannot, change what Congress has enacted. Moreover, we submit that, as a policy matter, no change is needed because very few hearings are, in fact, held in habeas corpus cases, and because the entire scheme of the law in the habeas area provides very strong protection to state interests, not only through the Townsend standard, but also through the exhaustion requirements and the separate presumption of correctness, which would apply once an evidentiary hearing is held. The question presented here, as distinguished from the question presented in McCleskey, Coleman, and all of the other cases in which the cause and prejudice standard has been adopted, is not whether the federal courts should exercise their jurisdiction, but how the federal courts should carry out their functions once they have made the decision that the door to the courthouse should be opened. The interests of the federal courts and of the federal government in that situation are distinct from the interests which apply and which have been balanced in those areas when this court has concluded that state interests are sufficiently strong so that the courthouse door should not be opened. What the state is seeking here is a rule which ignores those distinctions and which would push the pendulum of federalism too far toward the interests of the states and intrude on the function which is inherent in the federal bench in carrying out its responsibilities. As we take a more detailed look at the issues and interests which are applicable here, I believe that we see at least three separate lines of argument which support the position which Mr. Tamayo Reyes is advancing. Are these basically policy arguments, Mr. Wax, or are they based on, on the statute or our cases? Or are they a little of each? They're a little of each, Mr. Chief Justice. First, I believe that there are very strong statutory arguments which are evident from a review of the entire habeas corpus statutory scheme, not only Section 2254. As part of that statutory scheme, I will refer to the rules promulgated in 1976 and 77. The second tier of argument involves the interests which are at stake in this situation as distinguished from the interests at stake in McCluskey or the Wainwright type of situation. And third, we have the uh, multi-leveled interests protections to the state interests, which exist through the exhaustion requirement and the presumption of correctness. In looking at the statutory scheme, I believe that it is critical to examine not only what Congress did in Section 2254 in 1966, but also what it did in Section 2244 and did not do in Section 2254. In 1966, Congress created a presumption of finality in Section 2244. Congress concluded that 
when a successive petition is filed, it is appropriate to preclude additional evidentiary review. Congress did not import that same concept of finality into Section 2254. To the contrary, in Section 2254, Congress created an evidentiary rule which would be applicable once the hearing was being held. At the same time, in Section 2241, Congress expanded the jurisdiction of the district courts so that the evidentiary hearings which Congress was clearly contemplating would take place under the decisions which were handed down in 1963 could take place in a more convenient forum. So that the entire scheme as enacted in 1966 is replete with reference to hearings and indeed when Congress passed Section 2254 and established the presumption of correctness, it assumed and built on and around the standard which had been set down in Townsend. Well, Mr. Wax, uh, when, you, when you look at sub, subsection 3, which is an exception, I guess, to the presumption of correctness, and there that the material facts were not adequately developed at the state court hearing. I mean, that, that's what the Ninth Circuit relied on here. That's correct. Now, that section as written doesn't say anything about either cause and prejudice or about deliberate bypass, does it? No, the language of the statute does not. However, so both of those are really judicially created uh, uh, modifications or um, amendments to, to that section of the statute. You, you concede that there's some form of waiver here. You say it's deliberate bypass. Mr. Chief Justice, we say that because Congress used the identical language that was used in Townsend. And when Congress took the language from the Townsend decision and imported it into the statute, Congress took with it what this court had said well, those well, words meant in Townsend. But why, why do you say that, since the only thing they took from Townsend was, was this particular phrase, with no reference to any concept of waiver? In the legislative history, which appears in both the 1964 House report and again in the 1966 reports, one finds Congress specifically adverting to the decision in Townsend. Do you find them specifically adverting to deliberate bypass? No, that specific language does not appear. However, the action that Congress took in 2244 and 2241 makes reference to the fact that under Townsend, Congress thought at that time there would be more evidentiary hearings than had occurred previously. Now, it's turned out that they were wrong. And in fact, the number of hearings has decreased dramatically. But when they acted, they said in the portions of the legislative history, which are more applicable perhaps to Section 2241, we need to expand the jurisdiction of the district courts because under Townsend there will be more hearings. Mr. Wax, uh, 2254 also includes subsection B, which says that uh, an application shall not be for federal habeas shall not be granted unless it appears that the applicant has exhausted the remedies available in the courts of the state uh, or that there is either an absence of available state corrective process or the existence of circumstances rendering such process ineffective. 
That's rather a useless uh, provision if it, if it means that all he has to do is show up and doesn't have to make his available argument there, but, but, but can uh, uh, do, a, do a shoddy job and then, uh, then await a federal proceeding to do it. Mr. Don't Justice you think Scalia, that that points in the opposite direction from what you're arguing here? I believe that it does not. I believe that the existence of the exhaustion requirement in the statute, and as that has been interpreted by this Court, provides significant protection to the state. The exhaustion requirement precludes a petitioner from coming into the federal court and significantly reformulating his claims. If, however, the exhaustion requirement were read to preclude a petitioner from offering any new fact, and I submit that the state's position is not just, would not be limited if adopted, as they set it out, to subsection 3, but would eliminate the ability to present any new fact which they call material in any situation. That would, in essence, convert federal habeas into an appellate process. Perhaps that is what they want. But I submit that the exhaustion requirement requires the petitioner to come in on the same claim, but to give the federal court the benefit of, as in this case and as in the first McCluskey, and as in Vasquez, and as in Townsend itself, the benefit of an expert's assistance in understanding what the facts were. And in this case, that's in essence all that we're talking about. I, I, I must say, that's, that's, a, that's an unusual application of exhaustion. I think the terminology really comes from, uh, from administrative law, that you, you had to exhaust your administrative remedies before you came into federal court, and it was you know, unthinkable that any, any facts you didn't present to the administrative agency you could then uh, present to the federal court and, and could still be deemed to have exhausted your original remedy. It seems to me the federal court would say, why didn't you tell this to the administrative agency? And it seems to me the same thing here. Now, if there's cause, if there's cause for his reason not to present it, I can understand it. But, but it seems a, a strange exhaustion requirement to say that he, he can put before the state court whatever he chooses to put, but it doesn't matter because he can make a whole new case when he gets before the federal court. That doesn't seem to me to be real exhaustion. We are not urging a rule which would permit a petitioner to come in and do that without showing the absence of the deliberate bypass. My understanding of the decisions of this court and of all of the circuit courts which have analyzed the exhaustion requirement is that a federal habeas petitioner has historically and properly been permitted to come into the federal court and offer something new. If the rule were the same as you've indicated exists in the administrative law area, there would be no federal habeas corpus hearings. If we had to present every fact to the state court, there would be no reason for a hearing. Come in and argue, but you would never You could show that. cause and prejudice. I believe, I, I'm not sure though whether uh, Justice Scalia's comment, if I understood it correctly, would extend or could extend to precluding a hearing even if cause and prejudice Well, you're, you're entitled to answer him on his hypothesis. I think petitioner's submission says cause and prejudice. That's correct. I think you're, you're mistaking my point. I'm, I'm not saying that 2254B, by its literal application, uh, prevents what you tried to do here. I'm just saying it seems to me rather incompatible with... with uh, a mentality that puts in an exhaustion requirement. 
that Congress would, uh, would allow you to put in anything new that you want so long as there was not a deliberate bypass. The two don't, don't readily, readily go together. Most of the discussion of exhaustion comes up in the context of having presented a claim to the state court and not coming into federal court and significantly changing the claim. I'm not aware, and this may be a failing in my research, of any cases which have interpreted the exhaustion requirement to preclude the offering of facts under a deliberate bypass or any other standard. Vasquez uh, v. Hillary, uh, I submit, is very difficult to distinguish from this case. And in Vasquez, petitioner was permitted to come into federal court and offer a better expert's uh, opinion. The same was true in McCleskey 1. Indeed, the same was true, as I indicated, in Townsend. And I believe that historically, that is what we find. The, the fact does remain that, of course, D on its own terms, uh, taken with or without uh, conjunction with B, uh, with B uh, sets forth some very substantial state policies. And it, if, if you interpret 3 to say that the petitioner has, in effect, the option not to develop the facts adequately, by a poorly presented uh, state case, it gives very little effect to the whole, whole purpose of, of the main paragraph in D, which is to respect the judgments of the state. I believe, Justice Kennedy, that the existence of 2254D assumes the type of standard that was set up in Townsend. If they are seen as applying at separate stages of the proceeding, so that one would have to first overcome Townsend before getting a hearing, then in that hearing have to overcome the presumption. I think that it is reasonable to assume that Congress enacted a very difficult evidentiary presumption for a petitioner to overcome based on the type of standard which would be applied in the first instance in determining whether or not a hearing should be held. If the presumption of correctness as it applies in 2254D is made more difficult for a uh, petitioner to overcome, it seems to me that the court would be undoing what Congress set out to do when it enacted that statute. If we can't get a hearing unless cause and prejudice is shown, Congress' desire to provide protection through the presumption of correctness uh, is, is less necessary. And I don't believe that this court should, uh, should take that step. In addition to the statute, however, I believe it is important to look at the rules which were adopted in 1976 and 77. Rule 8 in particular, and the advisory committee notes to Rule 8, again, make reference to Townsend. And those rules, as are the statutes, are full of reference to evidentiary hearings. They are built on the assumption that habeas corpus is not an appellate process and that hearings will be held. And the fact that Congress adopted those rules in 1976 with knowledge of, we have to assume, what they meant and with the advisory committee report available to it, provides further evidence that the Townsend language has been adopted. 
In addition, a number of decisions of this court have called Section 2254D a codification of Townsend. I recognize that there is some dispute in the case law about that. However, in a number of decisions, including decisions in the last several years, this court has used that language. And to the extent that the court has recognized that Section 2254D codified Townsend, the state is not only asking you to overrule Townsend, but also to revisit a number of other cases in which that position has been stated. In looking at the decision in McCleskey, which was handed down last term, the state says that it is indistinguishable. We respectfully submit that it is not only distinguishable, but the analysis which the court undertook in that case supports the position that Mr. Tamayo Reyes is taking here. First, McCleskey specifically acknowledged that it was not changing the law and that what was being stated in that case was consistent with the historical decisions of the court in the area. That is clearly not the situation that we're dealing with here. Second, in McCleskey, the court acknowledged that that was an area in which the court had taken the lead and in which Congress's enactments had not been intended to preclude further judicial development of the law. That is distinguishable from this situation in which the entire history of congressional enactments in the area of habeas corpus is replete with evidentiary hearing language. Third, McCleskey saw a very close parallel between the question of an adequate and independent state ground which underlies the cause and prejudice analysis and the procedural default which occurs in the successive petition area. Here, we do not have a procedural default. To the extent that the state was attempting to suggest in its reply brief that Oregon law might consider uh, this situation a procedural default situation, it is important to look not only to the rules which they have cited, but in addition, Rule 71 of the Oregon Rules of Civil Procedure. As we indicated in our brief, the Oregon courts have, in some areas, adopted the Townsend and Fay language. Rule 71 of the Oregon Rules of Civil Procedure provides for relief from judgment under certain circumstances. And those circumstances include mistake, inadvertence, surprise, or excusable neglect. And I submit that the entire Oregon statutory scheme, if it is applicable at all, and I don't know that that is uh, clear in this situation, makes it crystal clear that we are not dealing here with a procedural default. The state court reached the merits, decided the case on the merits, and that is entirely distinct from the types of cases in which cause and prejudice has been applied. The McCleskey decision is distinguishable for yet another reason. 
in looking at Section 2244B, one finds a compound standard. Congress has indicated that a successive petition can be precluded if a claim was deliberately withheld or a petitioner otherwise abused the writ. To the extent that the discussion in McCluskey looked at the statutory language, it would have been focusing perhaps on both sections. The fact that Congress has in it otherwise abused the writ makes it very clear that Congress was not intending to limit this Court's authority to continue to define when an abuse of the writ should be found. McCluskey is further distinguishable because here we have an entire statutory scheme to inform the discussion about when a hearing should be held. There, nothing similar exists to the language which we have in 2241, 2243, 44, and most of the statutory and rule provisions. When the state suggests that the policy which has led this court to conclude that the cause and prejudice standard should be applied uh, is applicable here, we submit that they overlook several important distinctions. One of the most important is the interest that the federal court has in being able to faithfully carry out its responsibilities when the door is opened. Is it correct, Mr. Wax, that the uh, district court has the discretion to hold a hearing if it chooses to do so? It is certainly correct that they have the discretion to do so. If, however, this court adopts the rule which the state is suggesting, uh, it is entirely possible that that discretion could be removed. And if the court is to focus on the circumstances set out in Townsend in which a hearing is mandatory and address only that question, the discretion arguably would remain unlimited. Well, even under uh, the um, deliberate bypass uh, standard, does the court have discretion to go ahead and, and hold a hearing? I believe that it does, since Townsend says that a hearing is mandatory in the six enumerated uh, circumstances, but is discretionary in any other industry. Does that circumstance work for you or against you in this case, the fact that there is discretion to ignore the deliberate bypass rule, if that's the rule, or I assume the cause and prejudice rule, if that's the rule we adopt? The reality, I'm afraid, is that that works against us because the district judges are not, in my experience, exercising their discretion in that way. They are looking to the first part of Townsend and, in most instances, not looking to the fact that there is discretion available. Well, does it work for you to the extent that, if the rule is valid, it indicates the district, uh, that the statute is not binding on the district court? Yes, it would. When viewed in that way, it certainly would. But the discretion described in Fay against Noya was not discretion to hold a hearing, discretion to grant relief. Discretion to deny relief. There's no suggestion in Fay against Noya that that standard applies to whether or not a hearing should be held. 
and there's no talk about discretion in Townsend except discretion to hold additional hearings other than those that fit the six categories. Nothing about discretion to deny a hearing. That is correct. The discretion is, uh, as, as you've indicated, as I understand Grant hearings for additional reasons. Yes. In looking at the decision in Coleman, one finds further support for Mr. Tamayo Reyes because in that decision, the court noted that the costs in the federalism calculus are particularly high when a procedural default has occurred. And that recognition, I submit, uh, is applicable here and further underscores the fact that in balancing the federal state interests in this situation, the interests of the states are adequately protected. There are no other questions. I'll conclude my argument, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mr. Wax. Uh, Mr. Landau, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I would like to make a couple of points following up on Mr. Wax's remarks. First, uh, he has referred to the record to demonstrate the deficiency of the state court hearing and the necessity for the federal evidentiary hearing in this case, I want to refer to that bit of the record as well because I think it makes the point that I'm trying to make or that I tried to make in my opening remarks. Uh, if you take a look at that in the joint appendix, it, the deposition of the, of the interpreter indicates not that the, uh, that the translation was in any way inadequate. It demonstrates that he didn't have a very good memory at that point two years after the fact. How much more so, I would submit, would he have that problem were the evidence to be adduced some six years in addition after that or eight years after the fact. That is the very point uh, that we are asserting here is that there needs to be built into this system incentives for petitioners to put all of their evidence in at the earliest possible point so that the witnesses whose recollections are fresh or as fresh as possible at the time uh, can have that evidence. Why isn't that incentive provided by the natural desire of a person in prison to try to get out as soon as possible. Justice Stevens, there's, there's no question that there is that incentive that works in the system. Uh, our, pro- our concern is that the application of the deliberate bypass works against that uh, and that the, and that the uh, cause and prejudice uh, tests uh, provides the kind of uh, further incentive uh, that would ensure that the record you're arguing that the rule you're arguing for is really for the benefit of the prisoners, to make sure they make their cases as promptly as they can. I, I think, as I said in my opening remark, that adoption of the cause and prejudice test ultimately will benefit uh, the prisoners because it will uh, promote the ability of the federal state fact finders to make accurate decisions as early on in the process. Well, that just means it'll, it'll benefit those prisoners who, who deserve to get off. That's it true. will not benefit those who don't deserve to get off, because in those cases, uh, bad memory is a positive advantage, isn't it? Well, th- that is true, but... Uh, so you have to judge for yourself which percentage is the higher. Uh, I but, uh, without without <laughs> attempting to be glib in the slightest, uh, what we are after here is the accurate determination of the facts, and to the extent that it... Uh, that it weighs in favor of the petitioner so much better to the extent that it weighs against the petitioner, it certainly helps the balance of the system, which would otherwise be wasting its time. And that was the point that I, that I wanted to emphasize, was that this also 
uh, works in the favor of the federal courts, which might not otherwise have to hear the matter at all if the full record were put before the state or the state court in the first instance. Mr. Wax also mentions the legislative history uh, and says that in the uh, 64 and 66 uh, Act legislative history, uh, there is some aversion or some uh, reference to Townsend. That is true. Uh, but if you look at that legislative history, the comments are twofold. First, that there was ver- there's concern about the effect of Townsend being uh, too many additional hearings. And second, the inappropriateness uh, from a federalism point of view of having the federal courts reviewing the state fact-finding process. As the court has, as this court has observed in Sumner versus Mata, the whole underpinning of the statute is to reduce the friction that uh, necessarily follows when you have any evidentiary hearings uh, on, uh, in, in federal court to review those findings of the state court. Um, if, if that is so, it makes no sense to argue that the statute, I see that my time is up. Thank you, Mr. Landau. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Tuesday next at 10 o'clock.